The story is told of a uh, farmer from Texas who was visiting a farmer in Georgia who was telling the Texan how big his Georgia farm was. He said, our property line starts here, and it goes through those trees in the distance along the the stream on the left, across those hills over yonder, and back along that road on the right, and back to this tree stump. Well, the Texan said, that's pretty big. So, but back home on our farm, we get in the truck at sunrise, and we start to drive around the perimeter. And we drive, and we drive, and we drive. Then noon comes, and we stop and have lunch. And we continue to get, we get back in the truck and we drive some more. And we still don't get around our farm. We drive all afternoon, then we stop for supper. Then we drive into the night. And finally at midnight, we completely get around our farm. What do you think of that? The Georgian replied, yep, you know, I used to have an old light truck like that too. <laughs> you know... The point is, things aren't always as they may appear, and our um, conclusions can easily be uh, mistaken depending on our personal bias. You know, the case in point over the last several messages, I've tried to challenge you to compare your personal view as to what you believe to be the purpose and the portrait of the church, and compare it to what God clearly tells us in the Bible. You know, I don't know if you've ever come to this conclusion. I know I have had many times in my life. And I've come to the conclusion that much of what I thought or much of what I believed had no biblical basis whatsoever. And as confronted by the truth that's found in the Bible, I've had to make a decision either to believe and adopt God's truth or continued with my own mistaken ways. You know, there is absolute truth, and that truth sets us free from all the deception that's in the world around us today. And also, even from our own mistaken conclusions that come erroneously because of, you know, bad input. You know, garbage in, garbage out, they say. You know, as we look at this, last week we learned that the the perpetual pursuit of the church is to love one another. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He said, And it's by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, if you think about the fact that he says it's a new command that he's given us, and it's a commandment, it's not an option, it's not a suggestion, it's a commandment, uh, and it's very clear that God's people, his church, are to love one another. And as we look at this, the question has to to be asked. As you go through the Bible, I don't know, as as you go through and read it, I I ask a million questions. I've told you that several times. I, I love to ask the question, why? You know, why or how or where or when, whatever. And in this particular case, as I've read through and studied this passage, the question that I had in my own mind is, you know what, well, how are we to love one another? And Jesus said, even as I have loved you. That's how. And that's the standard. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ set the bar. And it's against that standard that love must be measured. You know, he established the record, so to speak. You know, as many of you know, I try not to use sports illustrations in my messages if I can help it. <clears throat> but sometimes you just can't help it. You know, you just, there's no other way around it. And the reality is last week uh, in, in the city of Los Angeles with the uh, annual Los Angeles Marathon, and you can't help but notice that there's, you know, times that are set or standards that are set. You know, what the record is or personal best of individuals who run these things. You know, in two hours and eight minutes and something like that for the men and a little more than that for the women. And that's a standard that's set. It's a standard of measurement by which all performance is measured. You know, people as they were interviewed, they knew, the runners knew that if we're going to win
win this race, I know that we're going to have to finish around 208 to 210 because after the 20 years of seeing history, we know that everyone who wins runs it in that time between 208 and 210. And so when we train, we train with the purpose of being able to run in such a way that we win. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 indicate that you and I as believers are to run in a way that we're to win. And the only way that we know how to do that is to measure against the standard that's objective. Every sport, there's a bar that's been set. You know, I work with baseball, I work with football, and every sport, there's a bar. You know, Hank Aaron, 755 home runs is a bar that's set for those who are home run hitters in Major League Baseball, that that's the ultimate goal, to break that record. You know, hitting 400 in a season, or so many stolen bases, or so many RBIs, so many hits. I mean, those are standards that are set, that those who aspire to accomplish such things understand and recognize that's what they need to do. The bar that's set in the case of Scripture is set for us in this particular case as to how you and I are to love one another by Jesus himself, who said that, you know, you're to love one another. We are to love one another even as I have loved you. That's how we're to love each other. And as we look at this in a similar manner, that's the goal or the bar that's been established. And this said should cause us to ask the following question, and that's this. Okay, well, if we're to love one another as Jesus loves us, how did he love us? If that's the standard and that's the bar, how did he love us? I mean, how do they do that? You know, if you look at somebody that's running a marathon, you know, how did they train? What did they do? What did they eat? What was their training regimen? How many miles did they run a week? You know, what did they do? What sacrifices did they make in order to be able to accomplish that goal? I know years back when I ran marathons that I knew what I needed to do to accomplish certain goals that I had set. I knew how many miles I had to run a week. I knew what time they had to average uh, because I was interested in setting a certain goal when I ran it. I just didn't run to finish, although as I was running it, that that was, I'd soon change my goals. But uh, that became the ultimate goal as you saw bodies laying on the side of the bushes, people stopping, you know, and having chicken and hamburgers, you know, along the side of the road. You know, it's an interesting experience, but but you, you set a goal and and you know, what do I have to do in order to achieve that goal? If you've got your Bibles with you, and if you don't, we've got some that you can use. But in Mark chapter 10, we find an answer to the question, how did Jesus love us? If he set the standard, he set the bar, and he says that you and I are to love one another even as he has loved us, then it's critical that we understand how did he love us. And in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, we're going to read these words as we get to it, but... As you're turning there, have you ever noticed that we tend to go easier on the faults of our friends than on those of strangers? It's kind of like, you know, the faults of our friends, you know, think about it for a second. You know, a rude comment or a bad attitude from a stranger, and man, there's fireworks. You ever notice that? Man! What? What? But if it's, you know, you're driving down the freeway to church, somebody cuts you off. And you're like, what? What was that? And you find out it's the, you know, the ladies that are coming to set up the, the tablecloths outside on the patio. You know, the, you know, praise God for those sisters. You know, it's just a whole different attitude that all of a sudden kicks in. You know what I'm saying? It's like, but if it's a stranger, it's like, what? What was that? You know, and, and why? Because when, 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 we, when we see the faults of our friends, we just kind of write it off to eh, having a bad day. That's no big deal. If you take into consideration the totality of our relationship and all the good things that we know about one another, you know, they're having a bad day, they said something stupid, they're not, you know, it's like, big deal. We just kind of, you, you write it off. You know, you, you dwell on the 95% of the things that you enjoy of your relationship and you just throw those 5% away. 
If you're going to survive in your marriage, you have to learn to dwell on the things that you appreciate about one another and not dwell on those 2 to 5 to 6 to 20% to 40% to 60%. As I look around the room, the percentages change. But that you, you know that you just you know you, you just don't really like about your spouse. I mean, you know, you got to dwell on those things that are good. You know, as, as the apostle Paul says, dwell on those things that are good and pure, lovely, of good repute. You know, let your mind dwell on those things. Don't think about the other things. But what's fascinating is is that when we look at this this particular passage, Jesus had a love for strangers, the same kind of love that he had for those who were his friends. And in Mark chapter 10, in verse 17, we read these words. And as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing that you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What an interesting encounter takes place before us. Here's a young man who runs to Jesus, and we're told that Jesus felt a love for him, and we kind of read through that quickly, but you've got to understand and recognize, think about this for a second. Jesus felt a love for a man who came to him and did not recognize him as the Savior of the world, but a mere teacher. How insulting that must be for God when people acknowledge him only as something less than the God of the universe, our creator. A mere teacher. He thought he was a teacher. Hey, what do I got to do to get into heaven is what he's saying. And he was, you know, how insulting that would be to think that somehow or another that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, was just another teacher of Israel. And yet the Bible doesn't indicate that Jesus said any of those things or felt those things. He felt a love for him. He said, well, what do I got to do to get into heaven? And he said, well, you know the commandments. You got to keep the laws of God. And he began to lay them all out. You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He could have went on and on. You know, always keep God first in your life. Don't have any false gods before you. I mean, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. And, and, this, and this young man says to him, I've, I've done that. I'm good in those areas. Now, I, I don't know if you recognize how arrogant that is or even how mistaken that is, but there is no way in the world that he had done all of those things and was never guilty ever of violating any of the standards of God. And the reason we know that is because the Word of God tells us that God set the bar and the standards so that all of us see that we can never reach it. 
God expects you and me to be perfect in order to get into the kingdom of God. He set his laws and standards as a tutor or a teacher to help us to see that that's not possible. None of us could ever do that on our own. We've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. None of us are righteous. No, not one. It's, it's, it's very clear to see. But this guy said, I've done all that. Jesus didn't get an argument with him. But he picked an area of his life that he knew would indict him. He said, then you know what? Then the only thing's lacking now is sell everything that you have. And go give what the proceeds are for the sale. Give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. And you notice his response? But it says that his face fell. And he walked away grieved. For he was one who owned much property. See, being God, he knew the button to push in this man's life. He knew the false God that he had before God, and that was his possessions. That was his money. That were, th- those were the, his things. And he said, well, then the only thing you need to do is just sell everything. That shouldn't be hard for you to do because you want to follow me. You want to do what's right before God. You want to get into the kingdom of God. So if you really want to do that, then it shouldn't be hard for you to go sell everything and then come and follow me. He goes, no, that's not it. I want to get to heaven on my terms, not on God's terms. There are many years of my life that I felt the same way. You know what? No, I want to go to heaven on my terms. I want three bucks worth of God on Sunday, and then I can live you know, the rest of the week any way that I want, and God, I'll tell you how I'll get to heaven, and then you'll just rubber stamp it. Stupid, huh? But, you know, a lot of people live like that every day. It's like, no, God, you're going to do things my way. You exist for me. I don't exist to serve you. And this man was troubled because he wasn't willing to give up everything and follow Jesus. Then Jesus went on to teach that, you know what? It's imp- you know how difficult it will be for rich people to get to the kingdom of God. And the reason is very simple because, and what blew the disciples away is that they had never seen rich people denied anything. Anything they ever wanted, they got, whether it was a position of power or influence or whatever. They've always, they always saw them get their way. Why? Because they had the money to do it. But the one thing that wealthy people don't understand is you can't buy your way into heaven. And that's why I said it'll be difficult for rich people to get into heaven because they're used to getting their way here on earth by using the money that God has provided for them to manipulate the system to get whatever it is that they want. And so as he went that direction, he said, hey, you know what? Then the disciples were really concerned. Well, then how does this all work? He said, you know, but with man, things seem impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And you notice as Jesus loved this man. He said he felt a love for him. A stranger who insulted him. A stranger who said, this is my way, and you're going to go along with it. And Jesus still felt a love for him. There's a lot to be learned from that. You know, Jesus felt a love for him, and he demonstrated his love going as far as to lay down his very life for the world, including this young man, including you, and including me. Even when I was him, the Bible says that God sent his son into the world to demonstrate this great love for us, and even when we're in rebellion or sinners, that Christ died for us. That Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, to hunt us down with this compelling love 
and there's nothing you can exchange for eternal life. This man thought he could buy his way into heaven. How foolish that is. There's only one way to come, and that's to come through the cross. So as we look at this, Jesus then went on, a lawyer asked him a question in Matthew chapter 22, and asked him a question testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in all the law? Think about it, man, all these laws, and there's a, which one's the greatest one? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Now stop and think about this. Did that young man pass the test? Absolutely not. Because he loved his possessions more than he loved God. He wasn't willing to give it up. So we see right there that he failed miserably with the standard, the bar that was set by God. That you have to be willing to turn your back on everything. Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple of mine, you know what? You're going to have to turn your back on, sometimes even on your own family members. You're going to have to turn your back on your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your aunts or your uncles. You're going to have to turn your back on your friends. Sometimes, you know, the price of discipleship, he said, pick up your cross daily, denying yourself and follow me. The cost of discipleship is something that we don't hear preached very often because it's something that people don't want to hear. But the greatest commandment is that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Period. And the second one is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And in those two commandments, everything in this book are summarized according to the words of our Savior. Everything. Do you love God more than everything else? See, in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was talking about the sower and the seed, He said, you know what, there's a reason that the seed is choked out. And that is when the worries of the world or the deceitfulness of riches come along, it chokes out the truth of God's word. There's a price to pay. There's a cost of discipleship. And yet, if you truly are seeking God, then it won't matter any of those things. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. The point is is that Jesus' talk and his walk were always in harmony with one another. Jesus taught that true godly love starts, you know, vertically between you and God and then extends horizontally between us and one another. That our talk and our walk are always the same. That even when people around him hated him, betrayed him, and were crucifying him, the Bible says that he still loved them. Before Jesus was arrested at the Last Supper, Judas next to him, betraying him, Jesus still loved him. And try to encourage him, implore him, urge him, exhort him not to do what he had set out to do. But he still loved them. You may be here today and you got some anger and bitterness in your heart towards God. I just want to tell you, he still loves you. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. And what a wonderful truth that is. How did Jesus demonstrate his love for the disciples? Because that's how he expects us to demonstrate our love for one another. Turn to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 13. Jesus gives an example. He says, in fact, specifically, this example that I give you, that you would follow it. In John chapter 13, starting with verse 4. And Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. See, Jesus got up. And as was a tradition in those days, when you walk from place to place, since there were no paved roads and no shoes, they were all open sandals, you'd get your feet dirty. And as you would go to someone's home and the hospitality would be extended by the host or the hostess, they would have servants at the door as you walked in to step into a basin of water and to wash your feet. And then they would dry them and then you would proceed on. For some reason, this particular evening, that didn't happen ahead of time. And so Jesus, at an appropriate time, got up and he walked over his disciples and he girded himself with the servant's robe or the servant's um, uh, towel that they put around them. He girded himself and he began to wash their feet. And Jesus said, what I do now you don't understand, but there's a day coming where you will understand it. Well, Peter got the message and inspired by the Spirit of God in 1 Peter chapter 5, we read these words, gird yourself, therefore, with humility towards one another. He understood Therefore, you know, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Gird yourself with humility. He remembered the lesson that Jesus taught. But he went to him and Jesus began to wash his feet. And Peter said, no way, you're not going to do that. And the reason Peter didn't want him to do it because he knew if Jesus did it, then he was going to have to do it as well. Because everything Jesus did, he did as an example for us to follow. And he figured it out pretty quick. If he washes my feet, then he's going to expect me to wash some of the other guy's feet and other people's feet. And you know what? We've got to find a way around this right now. I see where this is going. And Jesus said, this I've done, in verse 15, as an example that you should also do even as I have done. This I've done that you may also do. Jesus demonstrated that loving one another means serving one another. And since action-oriented love is predominant and so important as we go through Scripture, I want to take a moment. If you've got your bulletins, you'll notice we have a place there for notes. But you know what? We need to take a look at how do we get started? How do we get started loving one another as Jesus has loved us? Number one, we, ne- we must do this. First, we need to remember... They say, remember what? Remember that we're sinful and that we're selfish and that we're incapable of loving others the way that God wants us to love them. Period. It is not natural for you and I to love others as Jesus has loved us. The natural inclination of man is, what about me? What's in it for me? If I do this, I expect something in return. There's always some catch to it. The natural inclination of man is, you know what, we're not going to do that. We need to remember that we're sinful and that we're selfish and that we're incapable of loving others as God has loved us. And I know it sounds strange today in our culture that likes us to believe that you're okay and I'm okay and we're all fine. You know what, no we're not. We're all just rotten, selfish, sinful people. And the evidence is overwhelming. It's just amazing to me when I talk to people that say things like that. It's like, you know what, I... Tell me one good thing and I'll give you a hundred bad things about what you just said. You know, the world isn't a wonderful place. The world is a place that it's filled with hate. It's filled with evil. It's filled with the results of sin. 
And the reality is, is that the world is filled with people who are on the way to hell and that they need to understand it as I need to understand it, that our greatest need in life is to be forgiven by God. Period. We can't love as God loves. And the second point is that because we need to recognize that God's love is available only to believers in Jesus Christ. And it's produced by the Holy Spirit of God. And Romans 5, which we saw last time, is that God's love is poured out to us through the Spirit of God. God's love is poured out through us to those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So you'll notice what Jesus did with that rich young ruler, that young man who came to him. He needed to help him to see that he wasn't as good as he thought he was and that therefore he needed to recognize he needed to be forgiven by God. The reason that he confronted him and said, you're not as good as you think you are. You think that you're good. You think that you kept all these commandments. But you haven't. I know it. You know it. I'm not going to get into all that with you. I will just make one very vivid point. Sell everything that you have. Give your money to the poor and then come and follow me. If you're as good as you think you are, then you'll be willing to do that. Because the greatest love is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength. So when I ask you to do it, you shouldn't have a problem because that you're telling me is your greatest love. And I'm here to tell you that it isn't your greatest love. You are your greatest love. You and your things and your stuff and your comfort level, that's your greatest love. And why did Jesus do that? To help him to see that he had a need for forgiveness. The Bible teaches that the word of God, the standards of God are given to us as a tutor to help us see that we all need to be forgiven. And that the only way we can be forgiven is to come to the cross and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Believe that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. If we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then we shall be saved. That's the promise of God. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we should be excited to share that with anyone and everyone that God brings into our path because anything less than that is heresy, it's condemning, and it continues to deceive people to believe that they're okay. If you don't see a need for forgiveness, you certainly won't seek forgiveness. If you recognize you're not as good as you think you are, then it'll bring you to God at the foot of the cross and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm excited about the prospect of what Easter holds. There's no better day in the world to invite friends and family and and co-workers and neighbors to come to hear this simple message that God loves people in spite of themselves and that He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and He raised, raised Him from the dead. And if we believe in Him, we shall be saved. That's the message of God's great love. That's the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're committed at this church. That's what I'm committed as this pastor to make sure that we never get confused about the, the, the essentials of what is required for one to find forgiveness. We need to be excited about inviting people to hear the message. We need to be excited about sharing that message with people even if we don't invite them somewhere. It should be foremost on all of our minds. It's good news. It's not bad news. We run around as if we're apologizing to people that we're, we're helping share with them the only message that will keep them from, from hell and experiencing the final condemnation and the judgment of God. And we all tiptoe around like we don't want to offend people when everybody else is out there boldly telling people whatever their personal philosophy is, whatever their spiritual enlightenment is, they can't wait to tell you this new thing that they found. And we sit around going, well, we don't want to offend you by telling you what God wants us to tell you. 
How nonsensical is that? We need to get a little more excited about the fact that, you know what? We've come to know Christ and Him crucified. And if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. You know, it's a wonderful truth every night when I go to sleep to know that, you know what? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my, the Lord my soul to keep. But you know what? If I should die before I wake, great. I'm in my Savior's face. I mean, it's kind of like that. But that's, that's how I think. I mean, it's just like, you know, because Paul said, you know what? Absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. You know, I'm torn between staying here to being with you and to tell people about Jesus when I know that I'm confident in this very thing. That if I die, then I'm going to go to be with Him. Not because of anything I've done or anything that I deserve, but because He's done it all. I mean, that's good news. We don't have to walk around all mumpy-faced about it. That's awesome. Think about it. Recognize what? That recognize that God's love is available only to believers in Jesus Christ. Number three, realize that our sinful and selfish natures need to be controlled. On your own study time, personal time, read Galatians chapter 5 and see the fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of, of a person who has been born again, genuinely born again from God. The outworking of the Spirit's presence in that person's life is love, peace, patience, joy, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Love, God's love is an outworking of one who has come to faith in Christ. We need to recognize that we're in a constant battle between doing what's right before God and doing what we selfishly want to do. It is a constant battle every day. God, you know what? Your will be done and not mine. And yet in certain circumstances, man, we fight for our will. We want what we want when we want it. And that's the selfish nature that we still struggle with. But you know what? As we yield to the Spirit of God and walk in the Spirit, He's able to love others as Jesus loved us. He's able to use us and love people through us and respond, number four, to what the Bible says we should do regardless of how we feel. I can't even begin to tell you how nauseated I've become with a culture that continues to focus on feelings. How do you feel about this? Does anybody really care? I'm just telling you right now. If you come to me and say, here's how I feel about something, I don't care. I know that violates protocol for pastors, but, but I'm just telling you right now, I, I really don't care. If you come to me and say, this is what I believe that God is telling us to do, and here's the biblical foundation for it, let's look at that together. Now you got my interest, and we better check it out and make sure that we're following God's leading. But if you tell me how I feel, you know, here's what you deal with. Here's, some people, I feel like the, the blind should be closed. I feel like the blind should be open. I feel like it's hot in here. I feel like it's cold in here. I feel like the disco ball should be turning and the spotlight on it. I feel like you should be up on the stage so we have more room here. I feel like you shouldn't wear a red shirt because the last time you wore it, you looked like a talking head. I feel like I should park in the grand exalted ruler spot. No, I wasn't. I just wait each week to see who's going to park in that space. And then to see him get out, go like this. You know, but, so, but my point, I hope you understand, the point is very simple. You know what? Feelings are so deceiving. 
you know, some days I don't feel like I'm married, and other days I really feel like it. You know what I'm saying? And same with Linda. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just... Feelings are so... Just do what God tells us to do regardless of your feelings. This is what God says, do it. How you feel about it, who cares? Really, who cares? If you want to be obedient to God, then you have to lay aside feelings and emotions and just do what's right. You know, what happened to the rich young guy? Well, I don't feel like I can... Oh, you know, I don't feel like I can give up everything to follow Jesus... I've gotten really comfortable with my standard of living. Giving up everything. I don't feel like I could do that. I don't remember Jesus saying, you know what? Well, go and sell all your possessions if you feel like it. And then give them to the poor if you feel like it. And then come follow me if the feeling so leads you. That's like, it's nonsense. But we live in a culture. It's just, oh, I mean, we're just bombarded with people that want to know about feelings. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. You know, it's just, it's just, I'm interested in that Easter choir. But I understand if I don't make the cut. All right, with all that said, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to take a look at three things. This is the most incredible, the greatest exposition on the subject of love ever written. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to take a look at just the first three verses. We're going to examine the specific characteristics of God's love next week, but for now we're going to look at three general observations from Paul's opening remarks in verses 1 through 3. Notice what he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Notice in the verse 31 of the previous chapter 12, Paul says, earnestly desire the greatest gifts. And he says, and I show you still a more excellent way. The phrase or words, a more excellent way, emphasize that God's love is a continuing lifestyle. It's not simply a momentary act or a moment's feeling. It's a way of doing things. It's a habit of life. It's not an item. Okay, God, what do you expect of me? Okay, put it on your to-do list. Oh, love, love one another as I have loved you. Check, there it is. I got it. It's done. No, it's a continuous process. It's a perpetual pursuit. It's every day. It becomes a habit of life. It's who we are and what we're all about. You know, we need to recognize and understand in verse, chapter 14. Look at verse 1. He says, pursue love. Where spiritual gifts have their proper place, the great priority in life is for believers to perpetually pursue God's love in all that we do and all that we say because without love, life becomes meaningless and empty. That's his point that he's making. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, he says, notice, but I will show you still a more excellent way. He says, I will show you, meaning you'll see it. When you see God's love lived out before you, when you hear words that are exemplify God's love, when you see actions that, that, that shout God's love working through another person, you can see it. You will know it. It is visible. It is evident. It is not just cheap words that we throw out to one another, but it's, it's our life. It's everything. 
You'll see it in the life of those around you. They will see it in your life when you reach out and love them even as Jesus has loved you. It's so important that we look at this. In these first three verses, Paul reveals just how important love is to the church. He used three conditional statements that we'll see and we'll compare uh, these to love versus the spiritual endeavors that he lays out. Number one, without God's love, he says we have ineffective communication. Ineffective communication in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The word if or though which begins each of these verses suggests the thought that all of these examples are hypothetical. You know, no one is exactly like these statements, but even if they were without God's love, the results are nothing. So the points are exaggerated for the purpose of emphasis so that none of us will miss the underlying theme, and that's this. Without God's love in our ministry, in our lives, we will be ineffective in what we try to do for His sake. The word tongues, this is, I speak with the, the tongues. The word tongues refers to languages. You know, in the Greek word glossa, it appears 50 times in the New Testament, and it always has to do with languages or known languages. It's always interesting when I start, anytime now that I, that I go back and I see the Greek word is this, I keep thinking of my big fat Greek wedding. You know, the dead. In the Greek word, the Greek, it comes from the Greek. In the Greek, we got the word golosai, which in the English, we've got golosri, which we have words. There it is. It's from the Greek golosai. Got it? Got it. It's like, everything's like that. The best was Kimona. I mean, it's just like how I got that. But, but as we look at this, you know, the word glossary has to do with languages. And what his point is very simple. Even if I could speak with all the languages of the world, if what I say isn't bathed in love, God's love, then it doesn't matter how many languages that I can converse in. You know, languages are an incredible thing. To be able to speak and communicate in different languages is a wonderful gift. To be able to do so, it's an incredible thing. But the point is, even if you could speak in every known language of the world, if you don't have God's love bathing each of those words, then you know what? It's zero. It's worth nothing. See, and they were real excited about this gift of communication to others in different languages because they saw at Pentecost that all of those who were present heard the message of God in their own language and in their own dialect. And the Bible says they were in awe of what was going on. Could you imagine having a room like the United Nations where one person speaks and every person in there hears the message in their own language or dialect without having to use a translator? How impressive would that be? But God's point is, even if you could do that, if you don't have God's love in your communication, it's just a big zero. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. And when we go down through it, it's so important. They, they were amazed. They marveled. They were in awe. It was jaw-dropping. The tongues of angels, he says, even if you can speak with the tongues of angels. You know, the tongues of angels in, first, in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, Paul said, I've heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful to, for a man to utter. And he was saying that, you know, this language that he heard in heaven is God gave him a glimpse of it. You know, he couldn't even repeat the language. It was so marvelous and wonderful. And even if he could, he's saying that if you don't have love, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make any difference. The tongues of angels, and he says, he goes on and he talks about the fact that, you know, even if you could do these things, you become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, you've become, meaning that you weren't always this way, that something happened to change how you communicate with other people. 
Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And the warning is evident to me as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, and that's this. As God gifts each believer, every one of us who have come in faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that each one of us have been given a gift or gifts by God for the use, uh, for, for his service and for his glory. For, that's the purpose. And that we can become puffed up about the gifts that God has given us. He's saying that, you know, this gift that God's given you, you were able to communicate truth of God's word. But you know what? You have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. People don't even want to listen to you anymore because of the way that you share things with them. You know, the Bible says we're to speak the truth in love. And the question I had as I've gone through this is, you know, the, the application, very personal, is what habit? Have you developed in communicating with others? More importantly, what negative habit have you developed in your communication with others? Are you negative? Are you complaining? Are you critical of others and what they do or what they say? Do you tear people down? Do you gossip? Do you lie? I mean... You know, what are you doing with this ability to communicate? Is it pleasing to God? It's so easy to develop negative habits. It's so easy to complain and be critical of everything. To never see anything good in anything. To forget God's blessing in His hands on each and every one of us. To develop slowly into that just everything is, is, is bad and nothing is good. See, the Bible says we're to speak the truth to one another in love, bathed in God's love. We're not to sacrifice truth, but how we say it is so important. I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago, and they said, well, one person said the same thing that another person did, and the first person that said it said it in such a way that I didn't want to listen to it. The other person said it in such a way I guess I have to listen to it, even though I don't really like what they said. But the bottom line is they both said the same thing. But one had to be listened to because of the way that it was expressed. We need to become people who express ourselves in a way that is bathed in God's love so that the message that we share isn't lost in how we share it. What I shared was true. All of mankind, according to God, is sinful. Every one of us are lost. Every one of us are on the road to hell. That is a true statement. How we say that to others, notice what Jesus did. He didn't argue with them. I remember when you were five years old and you lied to your mom. I remember when you didn't honor your mother and father. I remember when you lied, cheat, and stolen business. The reason you got all the money that you have is because you're a cheater and a liar, and I know that. He didn't get into any of that with them. He just picked the one thing that he knew would, would, would reflect the point that he was trying to make. He wasn't trying to beat the guy up with truth. He was trying to, to share truth with them so that the truth would set him free. We need to be very careful, you know, how we invite people. Hey, you, you really need to come to hear our Easter service because you're going to hell. And uh, here's a flyer. <laughs> eh, I don't think it's going to work. You know, even though that's true, but it's probably not the way to share it. You know, we had people when I was on the road to hell that would invite us to church. They would invite us to go to things or hear things that would challenge us to hear the truth of God's word. But they did it in such a wonderful way and they always tagged and will buy lunch or dinner after it. <laughs> it worked, you know. So, you know, we got to be careful of how we do that. We need to develop communication skills that are bathed in love. You know, I learned that any of you who have married, any of you who have a relationship with other people, know that over a period of time you have to develop a way to express yourself in, in a way that's pleasing to one another. You know, if, like fellas, if your wife says, 
hey, um, and, and, and she's nodding her head yes, and she's saying, do you like this outfit that I bought? You know, I'm learning. The head's getting nod yes. It's, it's a danger, Will Robinson. You better go with the yes answer. Because it's like, you know, you don't want to go there. You know, or somebody says, does this outfit make me look heavy? Well, don't answer that. Because you know and I know it's not the outfit. You know, we need to be sensitive toward one another. A few years ago, I had this, this compulsion to grow a beard. And so I, I grew a beard and, you know, and um, one little old lady came up to me at church one day and she just shook her head. She just went. And I was like, what, what was that? And I said, oh, I, I don't understand. She goes, I just don't understand why a good looking man like you would want to hide behind that beard. I shaved. It worked. said, ma'am, you are just, your wisdom is, is, is just incredible. That's why we want older women mentoring younger women around here. See, you know, and, it's, and I realize it's difficult to balance these things. I love the story that I heard about two brothers who were just evil men. These guys were just evil men. And they were very wealthy. They were involved in the church. They used their money to get whatever they wanted. They manipulated themselves in a position of power and influence and, and all the rest of it. And they had basically, you know, snowed the, the pastor that they had. Well, the pastor retires. A new guy comes in and the guy's committed to speaking the truth but doing it in love. And he's got a problem with these guys. Well, one of them unexpectedly dies. They've got this big building program going. The other brother comes and says, listen, here's a check for the balance of the building program. If during the course of the memorial service, you just say one thing and you just tell people that my brother was a saint. And the pastor thought about it, prayed about it, took the check, deposited it. The next day at the memorial service, here's what he said. This man was an evil man. He cheated on his wife. He abused his family. He stole money from business. He was an evil man. And he kept going on and on. He was no good. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Compared to his brother, the man was a saint. Speak the truth in love. If not, we become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So I want to challenge you to consider that, you know, the gift of communication is such a wonderful gift. The book of James talks about the fact that, you know what, from our lips we can praise God. From our lips we can confess our sin. From our lips we can build one another up. We can edify, the Bible says, one another. We can encourage one another. As I said, we should exhort one another, implore one another, urge one another, build one another up, encourage one another to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling, to build one another up in the faith, to put a smile on one another's faces. Hey, you know what? You can do it. We need to be people that can help one another understand that, you know what? Through Christ, we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. 
And it's not that positive affirmation thing that somehow in and of ourselves, it's us that are doing these things. But through Christ, we can do all things. To encourage one another, get to the Word of God. What does the Bible teach? I spoke to somebody this past week who was depressed and discouraged about all these different things in his life and said, man, you know what? There's a point in time where you can either dwell on those things or you can get in the Word of God and dwell on the promises of God, but it's your choice. I can't tell you how to think, but I can encourage you, exhort you, and and turn you to Scripture that will deny the the lies that you're hearing in, in your mind every day. I doubt my salvation. Hey, you know what? Well, what does the Word of God have to say? Have you confessed your sin? Have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Do you believe that He died for you and He rose again from the dead? Then the Bible says that, you know what? Then you are saved, according to Scripture. And then we read Romans 8. There's nothing that will separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And we begin to read all the promises that are in the Bible. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. When the devil comes and he starts to whisper in our hearts when we have, quote, lost somebody to, to an illness or whatever. And, and, you know, they're not here before us anymore physically present. But we go to the word of God because the devil is the scheme or strategy. The devil is always to call into question the truths and the promises and the reliability of the word of God. But we go to the word of God and say, you know what, that's not what God God says, I know that I will see her again because she trusted in Christ as her Savior. I know the promises of God. I know that, you know, the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive will be caught up in the air and we will be there forever. I know in John 14, Jesus said that I go and prepare a place for you. And if that wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that because I can't lie to you. You know what? Fix your mind on these things. Meditate on the truth of the word of God. That's why we're a Bible teaching church because the standard that's been set is the truth of the word of God. That's why every ministry that we're involved in will bring people into contact with the truth of God's word. It's the only thing that will set people free from sin and from bondage. We need to recognize that we need to use our lips to encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. Number two, secondly, without God's love, we have incomplete understanding. Incomplete understanding. Notice he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, prophecy refers to spiritual understanding in a way that, you know, uh, bottom line is prophecy refers to the content of God's revelation to man. Everything that God wants man to know is found in Scripture. We think in terms that prophecy always went with predicting or telling what's going to happen in the future. And in essence, that is true as well. But at the same time, the entire Bible is prophetic in that God tells us everything that we need to know. Past, present, and what to expect in the future. It is the declaration of God's truth. Notice what he's saying. Even if you knew all of God's truth, but you didn't share it in love. It's worth nothing because the person listening isn't hearing a thing that you say. Notice that if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries. Mysteries, for example, were those things that previously weren't revealed by God but now are. Mystery of the church, for example. The mystery of salvation to all who aren't Jewish, to the Gentiles. Those are mysteries at one time that didn't make any sense to people. But as the word of God came and was finalized, it all makes sense. We understand those mysteries because they've been shared with us. We can share with people the truth. The mystery of, hey, you know what? What happens to people after they die? The mystery of where do we come from? Where are we going? What life is all about? The mystery of, oh, is there other life in other planets or whatever? It's like, you know what? We know mysteries that the world is out there actively searching and we can share those mysteries. And even though we know the answer to those mysteries, if we don't have love, no one will hear what we say. All knowledge 
everything there is to be known, all knowledge, all faith, as even to remove mountains. You know, this whole idea of knowing things that other people don't know. You know, there's a danger of becoming arrogant as we acquire more knowledge from God. I overheard a conversation not too long ago. I think some of you appreciate it. But there was, a, there was a gentleman that was sitting down at a table with other people. And he was looking around. And he goes like this. You know what? Well, he goes, it's one thing when you're wrong. And it's one thing when you're wrong. But I have a degree from Harvard. And when I'm wrong, the universe makes a little less sense. I mean, you just go, what? Are you kidding me? I mean, stop and think about it. But he's saying that, what, what, what Paul is saying is, you know, all things plus love equals something special. Faith plus love is something special. Knowledge plus love is something attractive. All things plus love is an irresistible appeal that will attract others to our Savior. And finally, he says that if we don't have God's love, our giving is insufficient. Insufficient giving in verse 3. And even if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, the point that he was making with the rich young ruler was, you know, even if you gave everything away, if you didn't do it because of God's love living within you, it doesn't mean anything. The Corinthians had a problem with their giving. How much, why, when, how. These were all questions that troubled them. Read 2 Corinthians 8 and chapter 9. But they also, like so many today, thought that they could earn or buy God's favor by their philanthropy. The rich young man thought he could buy eternal life by coming to Jesus and said, hey, how much is it going to cost? Jesus' point was, you know what? You don't have enough money. It's going to cost a tremendous price. It's going to cost my shedding my blood on the cross for your sins. And you can't buy that. You can't buy it. Think about this from a very simple perspective. Everything you and I have come as a gift from God how could anything he gives us give back to him and think that we've bought something with it? How silly is that? You can't buy God's forgiveness. Without God's love, there is no profit in God's eyes. No, as we mentioned, that we need to recognize God's love is available only to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And it's produced by the Holy Spirit in our life. Therefore, the Christian gives because the Holy Spirit prompts us to do so. Giving is a result or fruit of salvation. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, he said to Jesus, since I have defrauded people, I will give it back. Jesus said, hey, salvation's come to this man's household. Why? Because he received Jesus as his Savior. As he was born again, he changed from the inside and said, I'm going to replace and return and make restitution for everything that I've stolen from people. His act of giving was a result of God working in his heart. It wasn't, he didn't come to Jesus and say, well, I'm going to pay everybody back and then will I find salvation? No, he found salvation first and then he began to pay those back that he stole from. And that's the proper order. No, otherwise, you know, it, it, it confuses things. I'll give you an example. Here's a story that spotlights this kind of misunderstanding in our world, that somehow people can buy God's forgiveness. It says, if I sold my house and my car, this is a Sunday school teacher talking to her children. If I sold my house and my car, and I had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me to heaven? They said, no! If I cleaned the church every day and mowed the lawn and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me to heaven? No, they all said. 
Well then, if I was kind to animals and gave candy to all the children and loved my wife, would that get me into heaven? No. Well, then how can I get to heaven? And one little five-year-old kid said, you got to be dead. (laughs) He got it. And to that, I would add a clarification. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. In closing, what's wrong with sacrificial giving? Nothing, if there's love behind it. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you received the gift of forgiveness found at the cross in Jesus Christ? God loved the world. He gave His Son that whosoever, open invitation to all, whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. From 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses, I learn of God's formula. His math formula is very simple. Anything minus love equals nothing. Anything minus love equals nothing. Augustine said, what does love look like? It has hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and to the needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has has ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. And to that I would add what I learned from this. God's love has the lips to speak the truth in love and encourage those around us with words that build up and do not destroy. Is that love, God's love, evident to others as they observe your life? If not, why not? If you have come to know Christ, the Spirit of God has been poured out within you and the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, Patience, joy, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Let us demonstrate that to the world around us. And may that irresistible appeal draw people to want to know about our Savior. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go into your word again and be confronted by the truth of your word. God, we know that many of us are guilty in so many areas and it's not comfortable to hear these things. But your truth will set us free as we apply them in our life. God, I pray for those who are not sure of their relationship with you. That today will be amply clear in their life. Their need for forgiveness. That they're not perfect. That they need to be forgiven. That they would trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Believing that he died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. And that the words of God that if we believe on him we shall be saved are true. God, I thank you for the Spirit of God who indwells me as I've trusted in your forgiveness years ago. I thank you for the evidence that's seen in my life, and I thank you for the continued work that you continue to do. I just thank you that you say that the work that you began in us the day that we trusted in Christ, that you will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we just thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. Amen.